A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you always felt a little odd? A little different? The world is crying out for witches to heal and to rebuild. But do you hear its call and will you answer? This is a space for free thinking, where I give you tools to explore and build your craft. We all have a divine spark. Join me each week and grow that spark into a fiery beacon. I am your host Michael Moorcroft and I'll be bringing you a one-on-one guide to all things witchcraft and spirituality. This is... The Mage's Well. Hey Mages, this week I thought we'd travel to Asia and look at some of the traditions throughout the continent. Often when we think of magic, it's through a Eurocentric lens. One could easily be mistaken into perceiving Europe as the sole birthplace of magic and witchcraft. But that just isn't the reality. Societies all over the world, going back into prehistory, have delved into the magical arts. Today, I want to widen that lens and talk about the witchcraft of the East. Heads up, however, there are 48 countries within Asia, according to the UN. So, it's going to be broad and general at times, considering I'm looking at the continent as an overview and within a time frame of over 5,000 years, placed within a 20 minute or so podcast episode. I want to use the episode to dip our toe in, so we can come back at a later date and deep dive into a particular society or culture. A lot of Asian countries have a really rich history of shamanism, which is still prevalent today. I'm also going to be looking at shamanic practices in the East as well, as I think witchcraft and shamanism are closely related. Also, the label of witch means different things to different cultures and groups of people. Witchcraft in the West is becoming more and more fashionable, and it's enjoying a huge revival. Over in the East, however, that isn't necessarily a rule. Witchcraft isn't always seen as acceptable in some places, and in these scenarios, best case, practitioners and those accused of practicing face being ostracized. Worst case, they can be killed by the local community.
The West has often seen and regarded the East as a place that's abundant with mysticism and spirituality. A lot of spiritualist groups at the turn of the 20th century were deeply inspired around concepts originating from the East. It's an absolute well when it comes to spiritual practices and traditions. Out of the 12 major world religions, that of Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Sikhism, Taoism, Judaism, Confucianism, Baha'i, Shinto, Jainism, and Zoroastrianism, all 12 of these religions were founded in Asia. The word magic actually comes from the East. It first appeared as the Greek magike in one of Aristotle's lost pieces of work around 384 to 322 BCE, and it specifically referenced the workings of the priests of Zoroastrianism from ancient Persia. Spirituality, religion, philosophy, witchcraft, and magic became a giant melting pot and it was often a highly politicised one. I think in some cases, when we think of Eastern spirituality, we conjure images of monks meditating in caves in complete isolation. It's a Western stereotype, and it's one that really limits our understanding. Spirituality was used as a tool sometimes to seize political power, Monk rulers actually crop up a lot within many Asian countries throughout time. Historically, within Tibet, the interests of religion and state were combined. Rulers weren't necessarily interested in enlightenment, but rather how spirituality could benefit the state via controlling the weather, the destruction of its enemies, the protection of the ruler, as well as granting a longer life and more wealth, the curing of epidemics, and the avoidance of famine. Spirituality, when wielded correctly and effectively, added to political legitimacy. The kingdom of Shisha was under attack from Mongol forces. By 1210, the capital was under siege. Now, a Tibetan magician was employed as the court's chaplain. He summoned the terrifying and wrathful protector, Mahakala, to the battlefield. Now, the Mongols had dammed a nearby river, and this was causing the capital to flood. These dams suddenly burst and wiped out a decent chunk of the Mongol forces, and caused them to uncharacteristically retreat. This victory was, without question, attributed to Mahakala, and the Mongols actually hired Tibetan magicians to instruct their warfare, and in the classic If You Can't Beat Them, Join Them, made Mahakala their state protector, and he was actually credited for influencing several key battles in favour of the Mongols. There's one famous story that stands out where the Mongols were approaching China. The Chinese petitioned their god of war, Chenwu, he left a note on his altar saying that he conceded to the power of Mahakala and the Mongols. Now, war magic specialists known as Soktopa, Mongol repellers, popped up in Tibet to keep Mongols out of their affairs. Now, within India, there are the Vedas, a collection of sacred hymns and poems that are a cornerstone of Hinduism. The fourth text is known as Atharva Veda, meaning knowledge of the fire priest, and contains 730 hymns and 6,000 mantras, some of which are spells and incantations based around attaining love, protection, healing wounds, and fighting off demons. 
not really as fundamental as the other three texts. Those practicing spells can be branded as a witch, known as a dayan, a dangerous accusation in some parts of India today, which can lead to death. Now, within the book, it lists herbs and plants that possess supernatural abilities and powers, but knowing what each plant is capable of isn't enough, because hymns invoking the power of various deities need to be said whilst harvesting them, and then they need to be cleansed and the plant spirit invoked within each plant used. The user needs to sway back and forth and to nod their head in the rhythm of the invocation. The power of the plants will be felt within the body if the workings have been successful. Now the Srakcha tree is particularly revered within the text, whereby it advises the user to cut a piece of wood into something that they desire. Now generally, the tree has universal application, however its true power lies in fertility, prosperity and protection against witchcraft, so the charm could be crafted with one of these in mind. It is then tied to the user's right arm, and then a spell is said around what the user desires, to which afterwards butter is offered. Now, if you are interested in magical practices within India, you could check out my Kali episode where I speak a little bit about that. Now, looking at Japan, it is the home of Shintoism. It has a large portion of its population following Buddhism, and generally speaking, these religions are accepting of magic. Shintoism, it has a lot of shamanic elements and functions on the belief that everything including buildings, has a spirit called a kami. I spoke about this in my Himiko, the Shaman Queen episode. Practices developed around this idea that sought to work with the kami and to discover what its will was. And traditionally, witchcraft revolved heavily around the idea of having a familiar, called a skukemono, which could possess a person and cause misfortune to those around. Alternatively, these beings could be kept as a pet by the family, and in this case, it brought wealth and good luck. Magicians were called Omiyoji, and they practiced Omiyodo. They were also known for their use of Ofuda, which was essentially a paper talisman that a spell was written on, and it could be used for pretty much anything, from granting the person protection to finding love. Often, shkigami, or familiars, were summoned through the paper. These practitioners were quite popular, and could work in the court. In fact, an entire bureaucratic system was set up to appoint them. However, Omiyodo was banned in 1868, when Emperor Meiji came into power, whereby it entered into folk traditions. The idea of using paper within magic isn't dead. There is a popular love spell where the person rolls two very thin sheets of paper and forms a dog through twisting and knotting the paper. A paw must be beckoning and the tail needs to be long. This is then placed on a kamidana, which is a mini household altar. A needle is placed through its back leg and the person says the dog will be released from its torture when a lover comes. Wine and rice will also be given to it when this happens. 
There's also another interesting spell around hexing. A charm is created and buried near the intended target. Once the target steps on or over the charm, it becomes activated and has a link to the said target. The hexer then digs up the charm and essentially tortures it. Now the person who stood over the charm will feel its effects. If you want to learn more about Japan and its magical history, I have spoken about it in my Himiko the Shaman Queen episode. Now within China, there is a deep history of witchcraft and the magical arts, the founding place of Taoism, a philosophy that teaches the practitioner how to live in harmony with the world. For 2000 years, it was vital in shaping Chinese life. Now in its early stages, it actually combined Chinese shamanism and alchemy. The calendar that is used today in China is lunar-based and is built in such a way that many national holidays fall on a full moon. This calendar has been in operation for over 2,000 years. Traditionally, magical practitioners can be any gender, though it was usually female. There are shamans and magical practitioners within China today. However, it is an atheist country. The state has forbidden religious worship, but it tolerates it in some cases, so practitioners have to be careful and walk a very fine line. Magic was generally called Wu, whereas the more darker, sinister version was called Ku. Now, practitioners of Wu were shaman-like figures. They would enter trance and they would go to the spirit world. They would heal, they would interpret dreams as well as influencing the weather. Rain dancers were quite common in times of drought. Communication with the gods via entering trance was a big part of this practice. And this was also thought to be mainly done through dancing. The word Wu does have connections to the Chinese word to dance. Now these Wu practitioners were quite popular, but a scandal which involved Empress Chen Jia using Ku, the malevolent magic, knocked them out of favour. The Empress was arrested in 130 BCE, and 300 of her magical practitioners were executed. Now, Lu She, her husband, ruled China from 140 to 87 BCE. Now, he actually made his court a gathering place for shamans and magical practitioners. However, towards the end of his reign, this backfired and he became a target for black magic. It was discovered that wooden effigies had been burned throughout his palace, intending to inflict harm on him. Over time, magical practitioners were seen as politically disruptive. It should only be the emperor who engaged with the spirit world, and anyone else who attempted to do so were using powers that were property of the emperor. The practice of magic went underground and turned into folk magic that is still practiced today, a big part of which is ancestor worship. On the side of Ku, the darker, more sinister magic, there's a substance called goo that was particularly feared, collected by putting poisonous vipers, centipedes, scorpions, toads, and spiders, oh my, and forcing them to fight and eat one another. The survivor was seen as the toughest, and now had concentrated poisons flowing through them as well as their own. Dating from 610 BCE, goo is a form of black magic, usually practiced by women in southern China, particularly in the Miao and the Lingnan regions. Stories tell of how these women seduced travellers, administered the poison, and if their lover didn't return, they would die. It could sometimes take up to 10 days for the poison to be 
begin working. If the lover came back within the time frame agreed, she could give him an antidote. In other accounts, the victim actually dying was the aim as they came back as a quasi-demonic slave to the poisoner. A cure for goo involved burning a talisman, scattering the ash over sheep broth and then bathing the victim within the brew. This poison became such a fear for travellers that when they ate in a stranger's home, they would add a rhino's horn to their food. If it throffed, goo had supposedly been put into the food. Another cure, or another prevention rather, was carrying a licorice stick. It would allow the wearer to avoid harm. Interestingly, the women of Miao, one of the places where the poison was supposedly made, were seen with much apprehension by northern China. A common custom within China was feet binding. Effectively, women's feet would be broken in half to make them smaller. It was seen as beautiful, but often led to deadly infections as the woman aged. These Miao women didn't subscribe to that, they were seen as pretty barbaric because of it, and adding to this, they had premarital sexual freedom, and they could hunt and farm next to men. The tales around Gu highlight fears and prejudice against minority figures. The folklore created a distinct ethnic boundary throughout China that persisted till the end of the 19th century. Magical texts have also been discovered by archaeologists that date back to the 2nd and 3rd century BCE, containing a combination of omens to watch out for, as well as spells and talismans. It was quite a common belief that amber dispelled nightmare demons, so headrests were made from the material. Headrests played a really important role within Chinese society. What you slept on could influence your dreams, it was believed, which in turn, these dreams could be interpreted as omens. Research suggests that there wasn't a distinction between reality and dreams. The spirits and visions within dreams were very much part of the physical world, suggesting that headrests bridge the gap between the conscious and the unconscious. Interestingly, they often followed their owners into the grave. Another text also advised for those engaged within a legal dispute to write the person's name down and place this within a shoe, to symbolically stomp all over their opponent. Chinese magic also involved various forms of divination, the main two being oracle bones and the casting of yarrow stalks called I Ching, which I've spoken about in my divination episodes. Nafeng Shui, which you may have come across, is a form of divination called geomancy, which essentially means looking for signs in the land or nature in order to determine the future. This was used for building projects, in order to determine if someone built a house in location X, would they have a happy and fulfilling life. It also applied to grave sites, and on a grander scale, interpreters were employed to determine a prosperous site to build cities on. Now, Kong Hong is a very influential alchemist in the 4th century, and he believed the route to anything was battling demons. If you wanted to cure illness, obtain wealth, victory in whatever form, everything could be achieved if the right demons were fought against. One of the main tools he suggested for this was mirrors. The demon could be forced to show itself in the mirror, and once having seen it, its powers are severely reduced on the person. Now a mirror big enough and old enough would do the trick, but there are no further details given around this, and the mirror had to be covered at all times when not in use and only used to see demons. 
Now throughout Malaysia and Indonesia, witches are called Boma, and shamans are called Orang Pintar, or Orang Sakti. Orang means person, while Pintar means smart, and Sakti means powerful. Now within these regions, Santet, a dark, malevolent magic, is supposedly employed by political leaders and businessmen to attack their rivals and empower themselves. This is done through Guna Guna, which are like hexes, and Jampi Jampi, which are spells. Now, Vietnam attempted to quash magic and witchcraft from the 60s to the 80s with various, quote, anti-superstition campaigns, but they were largely unsuccessful. Magical practices went underground and emerged with a little bit of a rebrand. Practitioners claimed there was nothing illegal about what they were doing as it was, quote, folk practices, and they got around the laws. A folk practice that is very popular in Vietnam, as well as many countries throughout Asia, including mainland China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau, to name a few, as well as people from these countries that have now emigrated, is the Full Moon Festival, a celebration of the harvest season that is over 3,000 years old. Mooncakes are eaten, and in Vietnam, people express their gratitude to the local mountain deities and the moon. A big part of the festival involves lighting lanterns and releasing them into the night sky, with some debating the origins of this and why it happens. Some have suggested it comes from China's ghost festival, whereby lanterns are lit on rivers to guide the souls of the dead. The Vietnamese festival puts particular emphasis on children, as it's believed children have a closer connection to the spirit world and can communicate with the gods. Now over in Korea, there is a very unique type of shamanism that is native to the country called Musok, but to call it shamanism, it doesn't really do it justice. It is, according to Barney Batista, an English professor at Suwon Science College in Korea who has studied Musok extensively, quote, It predates Korea's present-day established religions. It is common to call it Korea's original religion. And it's unique in that rather than the shaman, in inverted commas, approaching the spirits and gods, with Musok, it's the other way around, where the practitioner is approached by these spirits. Despite being over 4,000 years old, according to some sources, it's alive and kicking today, where the practitioners who are at the top of their game have to pencil in new appointments a year in advance. It's got its roots very firmly in local folklore, leading it to be recognised as vital for Korean identity and culture. Now I'm fully aware of the limitations of today's episode. It's brief and it's an overview, but hopefully it's been insightful and it's contributed to the discussion of magic on a more global level and that robust systems of sorcery exist and have done so for thousands of years outside of the Western narrative. And Majors, that's it. That is a wrap for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. My intent with this podcast is to provide guidance and inspiration for those on their spiritual path and to talk about interesting parts of history relating to spirituality. I also want to connect you with information that is both useful and reliable. Would you like to support me? With your support, I can dedicate more time to the mage as well. You can financially support me through Patreon, where you'll gain access to more content and connect with the mage as well community. 
The link for this is in the episode description. If you're not keen on pledging money for whatever reason, but you still want to support, you can follow my Instagram, at the Majors Well. you could tell your friends and family about the show, you could post about the podcast, and most importantly, you could leave a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is really important, it really helps because it boosts the algorithm over on Apple Podcasts, and it draws in new listeners and helps get the podcast out there. Please help me out. This is an independent podcast. It's just me researching, producing, and editing. Anything you can do will help. If you own a business and would like to advertise on the show, please get in touch. The show's email is themajorswell at gmail.com. Special thanks to Coral St. Clair for the podcast artwork. Peace out, witches, and I'll see you at the crossroads. (laughs) 